0: Hello, and thank you for joining LTC NAC Chat, a podcast brought to you by the American Association of Post-Acute Care Nursing, APACN. I'm your host, Amy Stewart, Vice President of Education and Certification Strategy for APACN. And I'm here today with Joel Van Eaton, Executive Vice President of Compliance and Regulatory Affairs for Broad River Rehab and an APACN master teacher. He's here to talk about health literacy and its importance in nursing homes today. Welcome, Joel. Thank you, Amy. To start off this podcast, let's begin with some basics. What is health literacy?
1: Well, that's a great question, and I'm so happy to be able to talk about this with you all today. I think it's so important for us in long term care, in particular, to think about this, not just from the regulatory perspective, but from the perspective of how we are able to empower our residents in their ability to take control of their own health care. So many things that we've received from CMS guideline and regulation in the last few years, the conditions of participation and other regulatory requirements from the health equity issues and so on that really require us to consider this. And so, I think we start with a definition that the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services has given us. And I think if you Googled this, you would find a similar definition from a number of organizations. But the Department of Health and Human Services defines health literacy as the degree to which individuals have the capacity to obtain, process, and understand basic health information needed to make appropriate health decisions. It's a pretty loaded definition, but it's important that we break it down and think about how that might apply to our residents and really our staff as well. So, there's a couple of different ways to think about this definition. You can really break it down into two primary categories. First of all, personal health literacy, and that's defined as the degree to which individuals have the ability to find, understand, and use information and services to inform health-related decisions and actions for themselves and others. So when we think about personal health literacy, we think about being able to help our residents to make those kinds of decisions, find, understand, and use information to make health-related decisions. But also when we think about the caregiver as well, in terms of being able to make decisions and take action related to their health, related to themselves and others. And then we also think not only about personal health literacy, but also about organizational health literacy. And that's defined as the degree to which organizations equitably enable individuals to find, understand and use information and the services to inform health related decisions and actions for themselves and others. So the definition applies both to personal health literacy and organizational health literacy in relationship not only to the interaction that we have with our residents, but also with ourselves and with the requirements that we have as organizations, not only to be literate about our own health situations, but also the health situations of the residents that we care for and be competent to be able to care for those residents related to their particular dynamics. One of the things I think that is helpful for us to understand is that these definitions aren't static. They're really fluid, and they allow us to emphasize people's ability to use health information rather than just understand it. So, it's kind of a standard practice, I think, that we've all gotten used to. We give information on discharge to our residents, but the focus may not always be on the fact that they understand it to the degree that they would be able to use that information to make well-informed decisions rather than just appropriate ones. So well-informed decisions as opposed to just sort of appropriate decisions and also incorporate a public health perspective into decision-making and acknowledge that organizations have a responsibility to address health literacy. So when we think about the definition of health literacy, it's fairly broad and it gives us a sense for the responsibility that we have as long-term care providers to adjust to that, and to assimilate to it and incorporate it into the way that we practice in our each individual facilities.
0: Thank you for that information. I can't help but think back to being in a facility, being at the bedside, giving discharge instructions, and the manner in which I gave those instructions, I may have been talking really fast, and then at the end said, okay, do you understand it? Yes. And health literacy is really about changing the way that we present information to the residents so that they understand and I'm very excited to talk a little bit more about this. So, now that we know what health literacy is, why do you think health literacy matters for long-term care professionals in nursing homes and the residents they serve?
1: That's a really good application to that definition. I think about my own personal experience as well, about a situation I had with my own mother who was in a nursing home several years ago, and I happened to be able to be there when she was being discharged from that particular situation, and the discharge instructions to her were a big brown bag of medications at a paper to sign. And I think back on that situation, I remember how frustrating it was not only for me as a nurse uh, and as someone who uh, has worked in long-term care for over 20 years, but I I just remember how frustrating it was to my parents. And I remember in that situation, had I not been there, to be able to go home with them, take that all apart, simulate it, put it into a usable bar for them, they would have just completely been confused and perhaps would have had some negative implications related to that. So personally, for me, it's an important concept to think about, particularly in long-term care. It's interesting as we look through the research and read about health literacy just generally and from our clientele that we deal with. From the research, there's a lot of indication that, that health literacy challenges impact older adults more than any other age group. And in one study that we looked at, on average, adults age 65 and older have lower health literacy than adults under the age of 65 and low health literacy among older adults is associated with increased reports of poor physical functioning, pain, limitations of daily activities, poor mental health status. So even just from that little bit of information from some of the research, we know that the population that we serve really is at risk for the negative implications of not having proficient health literacy and having caregivers that are really attuned to applying the principles that we talked about in the definition of health literacy just a few moments ago. Also, improvements in health practice that address low health literacy because of these kinds of data that we know, they're needed to reduce disparities in health status. It's a word we've seen a lot lately, current administration, where we've talked about health literacy in relationship to health equity and the disparities in particular that have been sort of brought to light relative to the COVID pandemic that we've been experiencing. Certain populations having less ability to navigate this particular pandemic than other demographics. And so thinking about the disparities that are there really drive us to think about applying these principles in a person-centered approach that considers the individual as a multifaceted not merely as a receiver of services. So uh, back to the example that you gave a moment ago related to discharge and my personal example as well, it isn't that we're just giving services to people. I think one of the wonderful things that we've seen, at least in my sphere of influence and yours as well, is related to how the MDS has sort of materialized over the last several years, really since 2010 when MDS 3.0 came along where it really moved from an observational type of an assessment to really an assessment that requires us now to really have that person-centered approach, certainly from the conditions of participation to really the care planning guidelines and the state operations manual really demand that we have a person-centered approach, that the person, the resident, becomes the locus control of their own caregiving. And so that really does force us into if you will, an understanding of health literacy and how we can apply it to our particular individuals. It also requires giving people access to understandable information and decisions that support their care coming out of that with tools to equip them and their families back again to this whole process of sharing that information so that the continuum of care will be able to flow consistently with them and their families with the information to manage their health and wellness And navigate the full span of healthcare delivery systems and make their own informed choices about care. So, when we think about that and we think about our population, we think back to the statistics we looked at a minute ago related to those age 65 and older. Another statistic that comes to mind is that as many as three out of four Americans age 65 or older have multiple chronic conditions, and approximately two out of three Medicare beneficiaries have multiple chronic conditions. And the important piece to understand about that as it ties into our demographic is that people with multiple chronic conditions are also at increased risk for mortality and poorer day-to-day functioning. So that's important for us to understand that the people that we're getting not only from an age perspective are at risk for deficiencies related to health, their health status, and their proficiency to navigate the health system and be literate related to those kinds of things, but the fact that most of the patients that come to us have multiple chronic conditions as well. So one of the things that's been interesting to look from that perspective as we've sort of navigated the COVID-19 pandemic, a lot of literature about not only the disparities and the inequities, but also the issues related to comorbidities and those folks that are higher risk for poor outcomes related to COVID-19 in particular. And so there have been a number of research papers that have been written surrounding these uh, comorbidities. One of the things that was interesting that I was looking at is a table out of an article that I was reading that talks about the top pre-existing conditions associated with death in COVID-19 in patients 30 days or more after the index date. And this was data That was tabulated uh, in the period of time from March 2020 to February 2021. I'm just going to go down this list and just kind of read a couple of the things that typically we see in long-term care. Folks that have Alzheimer's disease, senile dementia. So that's top on the list. That's number two on this list. We also have about fifth down on the list: multiple sclerosis and a number of folks that we see come through our facilities. Heart failure, about midway on that list, mobility impairment, peripheral vascular disease. And so, this list is full of conditions that we find and even multiple chronic conditions that we find in residents that put them at higher risk for navigating even the COVID-19. And so, thinking about that and thinking about how we navigate through this process with our residents really brings us back to this definition of health literacy and thinking about how we can be culturally competent, trauma-informed caregivers related to this particular situation. I was reading in the memos that CMS released early in November related to sort of the restart of the survey process, and one of the things that they were very pointed in there at telling us that we need to be paying attention to is our facility assessment and nurse competencies related to being able to care for our residents, and that process takes us back to understanding the definition we talked about just a few minutes ago, and that's the personal health literacy and organizational health literacy. So, So many things that we can be paying attention to on a broader scale related to the age of the residents that are in our facilities or multiple chronic conditions and how that predisposes them to poor outcomes related to health literacy, but even more specifically with the COVID-19 situation that we find ourselves in now.
0: You know, when you talk about your experience with your mom or my experience over probably 23 years ago, it leads me to think about the need at the facility level for greater education surrounding health literacy and what it means. Because when I look back at my own career and when I talk about health literacy, you know, I tell people, you imagine that your nurses are doing the discharge instructions going over every line and so forth, you know, and that's fine. But really what it's all about is what part of those instructions Does the resident and the resident's family or caregiver understand because they're going to be needing to put that into practice and is what you've given them enough to set them up for success at home? So I really appreciate the statistics and stuff that you went over. I do think that the facilities across the country are going to have to start implementing education centered around health literacy, what it means and why it matters. So thank you for that. Moving on to our next question, the Patient-Driven Payment Model, or PDPM, was designed to focus on unique, individualized needs, characteristics, and goals of each resident. If there's inadequate health literacy in a facility, how could this impact PDPM and reimbursement?
1: That's a fantastic question, and I'm glad we're addressing that today in this conversation. I mentioned a minute ago that one of the wonderful things, uh, people look at me like I have horns growing out of my head when I say a wonderful thing is MDS 3.0. But 3.0 really did take us to a place where we are required now to get into the patient's life and really determine from their perspective the best care pathway the same thing, in my opinion, has happened with the reimbursement system now. Couldn't be more happy, even with some of the flaws that are inherent within PDPM, still it's a much better reimbursement system. One of the things that CMS reiterated over and over again, leading up to PDPM implementation in presentations, and, and I believe even in the text of the final rule, was that the reimbursement system was designed with a view to helping facilities make better care decisions. When we think about the difference between the RUG system and PDPM, we think about the fact that now we have the opportunity within all of the payment categories to be able to really understand, just like we do with MDS 3O, really understand the resident from their perspective, being able to understand the healthcare profile of that resident. Well, what better way is there for us to be able to determine what areas we need to be able to focus on in relationship to this issue of health literacy than when we spend the time it takes to understand their primary diagnosis in the PT, OT, and really the SLP category. And the differences between residents in the SLP category, we look at their comorbidities and the other areas, the cognitive deficiencies and so forth, that we can understand that resident even better. And certainly from the nursing perspective, that's been one of the challenges I think for the industry is to really make that turn to understand the nursing categories. And within those constructs, being able to understand specifically those residents' needs and be able to key into the areas where we can focus in on health literacy and certainly from the NTA perspective as well. So, thinking about that and thinking about where PDPM can drive us to better care decisions by understanding the residents' unique needs, by understanding their unique clinical profile, being able to design health literacy around that takes me to thinking about the requirements for skilled care generally related to CMS 100-2, Chapter 8. And this is fresh on my mind. We just finished a three-part series with our customers and others related to this in our reflections calls. And one of the things that really stood out to me as we were talking through that was thinking about the kinds of things that we need to really be out of the box on in terms of what constitutes a skill level of care, often we think about the fact that somebody has a two feet or a broken bone or needs physical therapy or whatever. But the manual itself is very explicit and starts off by actually talking about sort of non-traditional skilled services that we may not think about. One of them, as that applies to our conversation today, is teaching and training activities. And that's kind of what I have to focus on here, is that we have an opportunity within the construct of PDPM, understanding the unique resonance characteristics and then focusing in on that, and thinking about even from the reimbursement perspective, even from the guidelines that tell us what constitutes a skilled level of care, we're being told in that manual that teaching and training activities are actually a skilled service when they meet certain criteria. So I'd like to run through that real quick and then focus on looking at the actual list of training activities that they point out there and where that can point us to actually in the reimbursement system for the better care decisions that we can make. So teaching and training activities which requires skilled nursing or skilled rehabilitation personnel to teach a patient how to manage their treatment regimen would constitute a skilled service. Well, I mean, I could take that definition right there and that guideline for constituting a skill level of service and tie it right into what we talked about at the very beginning of the conversation today in terms of what is the definition of health literacy. We could almost call this category health literacy as opposed to teaching and training activities, in my opinion. Certainly the documentation has to support that. And one of the interesting things that they do in this particular portion of CMS 100 2 Chapter 8 is an example they give, and I'd like to read that. The example they give of teaching and training activities, a newly diagnosed diabetic patient is seen in order to learn to self-administer insulin injections. Now, I could stop right there and say, that's our definition of health literacy. How are we going to be able to give that resident the capacity to make well-informed decisions related to their diabetes in terms of self-administering injections. So it goes on to say that this newly diabetic patient is seen in order to learn to self-administer insulin injections, to prepare and follow a diabetic diet, to observe foot care precautions. So all three of those things, very important pieces for that particular resident in terms of uh, adequate health literacy when they leave our facility. Even though the patient voices an understanding of nutritional principles, of his diabetic diet, he expresses dissatisfaction with his food and refuses to comply with the education he's receiving. This refusal continues, notwithstanding efforts to counsel the patient on the potentially adverse consequences of the refusal to suggest alternative dietary choices that could help to avoid or alleviate these consequences, and the patient's response to the recommended treatment plan as well as all educational attempts is documented in the medical record. So, the example even that they give is very full of rich material for us to understand this teaching and training activity and how that applies to health literacy. And that really ties us back to the PDPM and the guidelines for skilled care and nursing facilities. When we look down the list of things that they've given us, just a couple of them here, we look at this example and one of the examples they give in the list of teaching and training activities that would constitute skill level of care is teaching a newly diabetic to administer insulin injections and prepare and follow diabetic diet, and to observe foot care precautions. Think about the kind of categories that would take us to special care high, special care low, possibly clinically complex, and certainly there's NTA points available there as well. Think about gait training, teaching of prosthesis care for a patient who has had a recent leg amputation, potentially a wound involved there, perhaps clinically complex, special care low. Teaching patients how to care for a recent colostomy or illostomy. Think about the NTA points associated with a colostomy. Teaching patients how to perform self-catheterization and self-administration of gastrostomy feedings. Special care high, special care low. And we could continue to go down that list. Each one, almost every one of these, ties into something that may be potentially true about that resident within most of these categories. So, I would just offer that as a way for us to think about within the reimbursement construct that we currently have. What a wonderful way, a rich way for us to incorporate the principles of health literacy even into how we care for our residents in the skilled nursing facility from the PDPM perspective.
0: Thank you for that robust information. I could not agree with you more. I feel that we need to start looking at incorporating teach back methods for everything that we do. And as you were talking about the diabetic, you know, the nutrition and planning that out, I was envisioning developing something like, you know, where you choose the right foods. And that way, you know, that when someone goes home, that they did fully understand the instructions given to them, because they were able to demonstrate it in the education that you provided, you know, the teach back, if you will. Is there anything else that you would like to share today with our listeners?
1: Yeah, I think there's a couple of things that we can consider really thinking future. We know that the regulatory environment really presses us to do these kinds of things that we've been talking about even now. But we've got some things coming down the road that we need to think about and apply these principles to as well, at least evaluate how well we're doing with these principles in order to be able to apply what's coming down the road in a way that will benefit not only our facilities, but the residents that we have. First of all, as you know, there were several changes that were getting ready to be made to the MDS last fall that got delayed related to the COVID pandemic. And one of those was a new quality reporting measure, transfer of health information to the patient. And this particular quality measure for the quality reporting program assesses for and reports on the timely transfer of health information, specifically transfer of a medication list. And this measure evaluates for the transfer of information when a patient or resident is discharged from their current setting of post-acute care to a private home or apartment board or care home assisted living group homes wherever it happens to be transitional living or home under the care of an organized home health service organization or hospice. So this is really important for us to think about not only do we need to be implementing these practices now, but as we think about what will happen in the future, we'll have a quality reporting measure that will actually gauge how we transfer information to the resident specifically in this case for this quality measure related to their medication list, tying also into the medication reconciliation process that we're already being measured under. But as we talked earlier about in our conversation, this discharge process really needs to be taken into account. Think about what are we doing to help that resident to apply the kind of teaching things that we're doing for them as we apply the definition of health literacy so that they can find, understand and use information and be able to use that information to make well-informed decisions rather than just appropriate decisions as we talked about. And so in this one particular way, we will have new items on the MDS that will gauge the process as to how we did that. The undertext really is not only that we're doing it, that we're doing it in a way that is beneficial to the resident from a health literacy perspective. We've also got several standardized patient assessment data elements coming our way and that primarily was what was bulking up the MDS until that got delayed related to COVID. But in that process, these spades, these standardized patient assessment data elements, within that is an entire new category for social determinants of health. And the fifth spade that will be part of that social determinants of health category for these spades will be, you guessed it, health literacy. A new item on the MDS, B1300 asks this question, how often do you need to have someone help you when you read instructions, pamphlets, or other written material from your doctor or your pharmacy. And here we have it. And so this, in my opinion, will probably be something that will expand further into how we're actually providing this kind of information once we determine the health literacy deficit that that individual might have. And then finally, from the final rule this year, one of the things that we've been writing about quite a bit recently and talking about getting ready to do some presentations on, has to do with the idea that CMS is now merging the two concepts of quality reporting and value-based purchasing. And if you were to look at the table that was posted in the final rule, you would find a, a whole new list. Uh, CMS has been given authority to add up to nine new quality measures on top of our current value-based purchasing rehospitalization measure, NQF 2510 the all-cause readmission measure that we're currently being measured under related to value-based purchasing. There will be nine new measures. And from CMS's conversation on the Open Door Forum, that will begin in the final rule, the preliminary and final rulemaking process next year. So we're getting ready to see how this will morph and change. And the important thing to think about that is for the first time, we're seeing the patient's voice being added into how we're going to be measured for value-based purchasing. We've got two outcomes measures for patient experience. We've got the Core-Q short stay discharge measure, and we'll also have a patient-reported outcomes measure from the Promise tool. But also within those quality measures that are being considered to be added to value-based purchasing, we have this wonderful quality reporting measure that we may not pay attention to very often, but it will certainly take on more importance as we move forward with this, And that is the discharge to community measure post acute care skilled nursing facility quality reporting program measure. And that's an important one based on what we've been talking about today. How are we preparing our residents for success once they leave our facilities from a health literacy perspective? Really is the key element that we need to think about there. And so, thinking about that, a number of things that I would encourage people to think about future as we apply these principles today.
0: Joel, thank you. You've given our listeners a lot to think about. Lots of things coming down the pike. Lots of changes, additions to the MDS, but the real key message is prepping today and getting ready. So, thank you for sharing that information with our listeners today.
1: Thank you so much. I appreciate the opportunity.
0: Listeners, thank you for joining us today. For more resources and tools for nurse assessment coordinators, please visit our website at www.aapacn.org. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the LTC NAC Chat podcast. Heard the news about how you can improve quality care and increase efficiency with Ability? Ability offers a range of applications to simplify the complexity of healthcare allowing organizations of all types and sizes to spend more time on care and less time manually collecting, analyzing, and reporting data. This allows you to remain in compliance while making data-driven decisions that benefit residents. With Ability, your facility can improve resident outcomes, optimize reporting data, enhance reimbursements, and much, much more. Discover what Ability has to offer at abilitynetwork.com slash apacin.